0: Join with me in turning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We want to look here at the Gospel of Mark and chapter 2. We're going to pick up reading in verse 13. Notice these words here. This is a very powerful and short narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe it's been so tucked away that you missed it. Let's read it here as this is the Word of God to us. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your holy word. We pray now a blessing on this word. May it bless not only our hearts, but someone this week that we might touch in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently at a youth camp, uh, family camp really, I was asked a, a very pointed question by a college student. I was approached and, and, uh, and I had met this individual at another place and, uh, and he knew me a little bit about me and stuff. And so he had a very pointed question. And I've been asked a lot of different questions. This was actually a very good question. You know, some people say there's no, no such thing as a bad question. I, I, I tend to disagree with that. But nonetheless, this was a good question. Here's what he said to me. He said, what if someone, you know, in in the process of trying to share Jesus with people, what if someone doesn't need God? What if they say they're doing fine and they don't see a need for God in their life? That's a good question. Because we live in a culture of people who walk around and drive around and air condition themselves around and eat around, and provide for themselves at work, and they feel as if there's a facade placed over our eyes that tells us we don't really need God. That the whole church experience is just something we made up. Make ourselves feel better. You've heard this before, maybe. I have, for sure. And so the question is pointed to us, should we create a need in people? I mean, what if you do bump into somebody and say, hey, I've got good news share? Well, I'm already living a good life. I'm already doing fine. That's going to be a tough sale, as we often say. But are we selling Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm not in the business of selling Jesus. I I, I would not make it in sales. Maybe you could, but I'm not here to mass produce Jesus to, to everybody or try to cheaply sell you on Christ. So what do we do, though? Do we manufacture a need in that other person? I really have four quick responses to that, and the first is this. I would say this. Behind the scenes, most likely that person is not being honest with themselves if they say that they don't need God. The second thing would be this. No one is 100% satisfied with this life. No matter how much you get, no matter what position you rise to, no matter how much money you make or don't make or what toys you accumulate in this life, it's never enough. Haven't you noticed that growing up as a child? Haven't you noticed as an adult you get something new and maybe it's the car you've always wanted and you get it and you're happy and it's fantastic. But there's something in you that simply just says, this "Is it? This is it?" And then you see somebody else with maybe bigger tires, mud tires, and you're like, "Man," or maybe it's a you know faster car. They got the upgraded model. There's just something in us that's never truly satisfied with this life. The third thing is this. That person who would say that they don't need God will wear down. That sort of false assurance will wear down in their life. It won't last forever. They'll meet a time, and this is what I shared with that college student, they'll meet a time in their life where they won't be able to handle it themselves. Where they'll have to turn to another Their defenses will wane and the walls will be broken down. Life has a way of doing that, doesn't it? We think we're self-sufficient, but life comes at us fast. It helps us realize we're not. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, there's something in us that desires God and cannot be filled up with anything other than God. Isn't that where the Pharisees here... Found themselves with Jesus? Technically, here it was the scribes of the Pharisees, which was a particular group within the Pharisaical movement, which the Pharisees oftentimes get a bad rap. They were actually just the devout and religious people of Judaism. They were the ones who actually wore the Christian t shirts. They literally had scripture that was written on their articles of clothing. So they would walk around with the Holy Scripture written on their clothing. Not only that, they would pray in public places. They gave the most. They served in the temple the most. And they were experts at the law. And you may remember that Paul himself was a, was a Pharisee. And so here's this narrative here of Jesus calling Levi. And you may say, well, who in the world is Levi? Well, he actually wrote a gospel. <laughs> it's Matthew. Matthew here is Levi. Levi was probably his Hebrew name. And uh, he uses actually for the gospel writing, he actually uses a different name than his Hebrew and his, his Jewish upbringing. And so here in our story, here's what ends up happening is Jesus is again beside the sea teaching people and people are coming to him. So this is, you know, oftentimes we may have read this story and thought Levi was just kind of sitting there, had never met Jesus. And then Jesus comes by and says, follow me. And Levi gets up and leaves everything. Levi had heard Jesus' teachings. Levi's office probably was overlooking the, the Sea of Galilee here where, where Jesus was. He probably had you know, pretty expensive real estate that he was renting or owning. As, as a tax collector, he would have been elite, rich. Uh, also considered a traitor uh, among his own people. And so here, Jesus approaches Levi, Matthew, and says to him follow me, and what the scripture says is immediately he arose and followed him. He gets up, leaves that life behind, and follows Jesus. Here's a tax collector. One of the most corrupt people. I mean, I, you know, again, I hate to throw out different jobs that would be similar in our society, but you can. I'll let you entertain yourself with what you might think as, as a corrupt job. I actually heard on the radio this past week uh, the top ten most corrupt jobs that we perceive people have. Of course, politicians made it twice, local politicians and federal politicians. So it's like, wow, okay, well, we we apparently are are a little uh, hesitant with politicians, Uh, you know, lawyers and other people made it as well. But I'll let you entertain yourself with different ideas about corruption and stuff. These guys were seen and pegged as corrupt, tax collectors. They had... Essentially, betrayed their Jewish heritage to work for the Romans and collect your taxes to give to Caesar. And this was just uh, blasphemy in the mind of a Jew. And so Jesus calls that kind of person. And notice what kind of happens here in, in 15 through 17. There's a play on words here with tax collectors and sinners. It said three, it's actually repeated three different times in a different order. In other words, he goes from tax collectors and sinners to sinners and tax collectors, then back to tax collectors and sinners. Because when the scribes of the Pharisees looked at these individuals, what they saw first and foremost was sinners. That's why the change up here. Jesus doesn't just see that. That's a secondary effect for him. uh, Because he knows there's hope for the sinner. There's a a saying that I like. It says every uh, saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And this, Jesus offered a future to Levi whose name is later changed to Matthew who then writes a gospel who's actually an apostle of Jesus, one of the twelve disciples himself. And so he leaves. And then we get down to the, the, the last part here. They're at Levi's table. They've gone to his house much like Jesus did with... Uh, Zacchaeus, remember, Zacchaeus was actually a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but he was over other tax collectors. So you talk about somebody that had money. This guy had a lot of money. And just like that, Jesus says, hey, buddy, we're going to your house today. Jesus knew where the good food was. And he was actually accused, was he not, of actually partying and having a good time. And this was something that was actually looked down upon. So, you know, again, one reason you may say, why do, why do churches have these meals and all this kind of stuff sometimes, these fellowships? I mean, is that even godly? Well, Jesus did it. And it's also a way to reach more people. Who do you think all of Levi's and uh, Zacchaeus' friends were? They were also sinners. And so here's Jesus now at the table. He has access now to people that he normally doesn't have access to. Jesus was not super rich. Uh, and so now he has access to people that he had not had access to. And so, the, but, he, but something happens here. The scribes of the Pharisees are apparently there. And if you know anything about how the houses were set up, people could look in your window and hear things that were going on. It's not like today where we have these closed-in forts, you know? It's like I want to go visit you, and I gotta have a key code to get into the neighborhood. And then, you know, your house is all fortified. That was not how the ancient world functioned. You could see straight in, and people oftentimes lounged around when famous people were there outside of the houses so they could hear them. And this is apparently what was happening. The scribes necessarily weren't invited, but they were outside listening. And this is why they, decide, they actually asked the disciples the question—and Jesus hears them. And I think the takeaway from that is He hears us, doesn't He? He not only hears what we say when nobody else is around, but He hears our heart. He knows what our heart is really saying. And He knew what the heart of these scribes of the Pharisees, and they said, why is He eating with these people? And Jesus says this, powerful words here that we want to hone in on. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, you don't go to the doctor when you're doing great. You don't think about that. You don't think about the dentist. You don't plan your life around a dentist. Uh, unless something's going wrong, and he says you're not going to find healing unless you understand your illness. Know your disease, Wesley said. Know your cure. He then says, "This I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." He said, "Well, I mean, what was he saying? He doesn't. He doesn't like righteous people. Well, of course, that's not what he's saying. It's it's again." a play on words the righteous here are those who think they're well think they're okay just like the question that was posed to me they believe they don't need God have you ever been there before where you felt like you really didn't need God maybe you wouldn't just come right out and say that but don't we live like that I do from time to time we have what we call first world problems. You've heard of these? A friend told me yesterday, actually, he said, um, yeah, I'm driving around in a vehicle that does not have air conditioning. And I nearly hit the floor, you know. I'm like, how are you doing that? Like, I don't I mean, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, what what's going on? Do you need... Do you need help? I mean, you don't have air conditioning because that's a first world problem. Uh, but air conditioning is, is kind, of a, kind of a big thing for us. We get used to it. We get used to our pleasantries and our luxuries and our privileges. But we don't see sometimes the need around us and how well we actually have it. Uh, this is what we call sort of a, a first world problem. We, we have this kind of problem too. We, we go for fast food and it's not so fast, right? And we get angry, you know, over the fast food. Jim Gaffigan tells the story. We, we actually have sort of perfected trying to do fast food so much that now we just have a number. You don't even tell the person what you want. just, number one, you know. He said, well, eventually get to a place where we just drive up there and we just grunt. And then we get what we want. You know, it's just <laughs> going to be that easy. You know, And you just get what you want. Oh, okay, he wants a number three. You know. But we, we, we try to perfect all these luxuries. We try to, we try to bathe ourselves in all this... And it's the world we live in. Look, there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's not. There's nothing wrong with living in luxury. The Scripture doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. But instead, the love of money is the root of all evil. If you can't let it go, then that's evil. I'm not saying you have to go turn off your air conditioner today don't do that, (laughs) if you you can help it at all. Um, You don't have to do these things to persecute yourself, so to speak. But when the time comes for there to be sacrifice, we need to be willing to let go. When God says share, we need to say yes, rather than mine. And so we are blinded as rich people. You say, well, you know, you're talking about rich people, lap of luxury, all these kind of lavish terms. That's not me, man. Well, just because you're in America, you are highly privileged. And you've heard this. I'm not, I'm not saying this to give you a guilt trip. I'm saying this to identify myself in the same camp that you're in. We're all privileged to live where we live. Maybe you've gone on a mission trip. Maybe you've seen other conditions around the world. Maybe you've seen some awful conditions right here in America. But the majority of us in this room are very privileged. We're in the top 1% of people who've ever lived like this before. You say, well, I don't have servants and stuff. But when you pay people to fix your food, what do you think they're doing? When you pay people to fix your air conditioner, or pay people to do this or that, what do you think you're doing? I mean, not the majority of people in the world have not had the opportunity to do what we have to do with our money which is we make money and we pay other people to do stuff like go plant crops and go harvest those crops and put them on the thing. And we think we've done something because we had to go to the grocery store to get food. Well, I mean, I went to the grocery store. I cooked it, you know. Well, there was a whole long process behind that that we sometimes often forget. And so what ends up happening is we get caught up in our own little world of pleasing and that, and then we start running over the people who are serving us. I've seen this happen. I've talked to waitresses who have told me that the worst day to receive tips is on Sunday. Which is why if I go out to eat on Sundays, I always try to do a little more on Sundays to make up for the jerk Christians who don't. Even if they're having a bad day, what kind of testimony would it be to say, you know what? We're going to bless this person. Hey, have a great day. Thanks for serving us. I'm telling you, we get caught. I get caught up in people providing for me that I become a rich snob. This is where the Pharisees were. Why are you eating with these people? You should be eating with us. We're the ones who are going to church. We're the ones who are serving you on the guitar. We're the ones who are doing VBS. Why are you not coming to hang out with us? You're sitting over there with a bunch of sinners. Jesus said, yeah, that's right. Because they understand their need for me. You don't. You're blinded. Anytime I talk about blindedness, I inevitably, and I haven't used this in a long time so I feel comfortable doing it, but I inevitably think about The Matrix. One of my more favorite movies, um, trilogies really. And it teaches a really powerful thing and that is we can be blinded By privilege and luxury. As long as we're plugged into the machine, bread and circuses, food and entertainment, we're happy to sit back and not want to know the truth. Because reality shakes us up a bit, doesn't it? When we really find out who we are, when we really dig down deep, when God begins to drill down and some things come out, like one of my professors used to say, when God takes an old dead cat out of our pool... Bad image, isn't it? That's what sin looks like in our life. We've got some things that are hiding down there. We've got doors that are shut. We've got things that are off limits to anybody, including God. But He knows our heart. Doesn't He hear us just like He heard these Pharisees? You see, what I'm saying to you is this let's not, as a church, let me use, use an adjectival form of this word, become entropic. Entropy, let's not slow down to the point where we're stalled out on being a Christian. Just coming in here, doing the motions. Let's just get it done. we got to be good. we got to sing. we got to recite. we got to hear the Word. Alright, let's get home and get back to normal life. Listen, that's not what Jesus is offering today. And if you're stuck in that, if things have slowed down for you... If you've come to a halting stop, the Holy Spirit is ready to descend. He's more ready to be given to you than we are to receive Him. But we must know our illness. And our illness is not, I'm not saying go give up all your stuff. I'm not trying to even put you on a guilt trip. I honestly am happy that I'm an American. I love having air conditioning. No joke. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm saying this. Because you're so privileged and rich in many ways that you might not even see, that's a responsibility. And one day, you're going to stand before God and He's going to say, well, son, well, daughter, what would you do with what I gave you? And it's not good enough to say, well, you didn't give me a, what so-and-so gave me, you know, what they had, what you gave them. You Remember, Jesus told a parable about that, right? Gave one guy one, got another guy three, another guy five. The three and five, they buried theirs and it produced. Uh, I mean, not, not buried, they, they invested it. The guy who got one, he didn't. And he even took the one away and gave it to the five. Point is, no matter what you have, God can double that. But you've got to start off small. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible and in our world that God likes to start off with things that are small and grow them into something big? We love stories where somebody started a business in their garage and now it's a multi-billion dollar company. We like stories like that of something growing. When I look at a tree, I think, wow, that was once a seed, this massive tree that's been there for 40 plus years start out just as a little bitty seed but if we refuse to see our need at the beginning we'll never grow bigger than the seed this is what Jesus says he says unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains only a seed there is great potential in this room I don't mean because of what you owe. I'm not saying you have to do all this stuff with what you own. But, I'm saying if you don't die to yourself, your riches, your privilege, your luxury may swallow you up. Much like the rich young ruler. The Bible speaks a lot about riches and being wealthy and how hard it is for wealthy people to enter into the kingdom of God. By all standards of measurement, America, even low-income people in America, are wealthy. That means it's going to be difficult for us. The road is not going to be easy. And we must check ourselves to make sure we haven't come to a stop in our Christian life. We also must make sure that we are not nominal. This is another term that sometimes is used. You know what nominal means? Existing in name only. Don't don't do that. There has been much damage done in the church in America Because people were just sitting there existing in name only. Just to get the label. Just to get whatever. A fix or please their wife or whatever it was. They were just coming to who knows what. Please themselves. If we're honest. Go through the motions. Let's be real with where we're at. Understand that sometimes we're just spoiled brats. And we act like it. We treat other people like that. And we are not called to do that. The people that serve us, the people that we pay, no matter if they're doing a poor job or not, we are to be a master like Jesus is. And we do, I do a poor enough job being a Christian, and He's still a good master to me. We should do the same and return that to others. So if sometimes we act like spoiled little brats like children, like my kids who have so much and yet they sit around with thousands of toys around them saying, man, there's nothing to do I mean, I want to punch myself in the head when they say that you know what I mean? I don't even understand that Um, and yet we all see it, don't we? we all don't like it how do you fix that? How do we not become like these Pharisees who only see sinners around and see themselves as good, self-sufficient, okay? I I think there's three things that will help us not become nominal, that will keep us what we call sort of on fire for God. They might not be things that you think about often doing that. The first is suffering. Suffering. Suffering has a nice way of slapping us in the face and getting us to see what's important. We kind of live our lives and get in our own little bubble, in our own routine, get lost in ourselves, but then when somebody dies that's close to us, things go back down to ground zero. When all of a sudden a marriage is shook up, you begin to see things that are important. When tragedy strikes, when suffering is there, we see the need for others. We see how important relationships are, how precious life is. Serving. Not only suffering, but serving. When you serve another person, something changes. The way you view them changes. You know, I always had an idea about what homeless people were like and why they were there. Why they were in the situation they were in. But until I actually served them, myself, looked them in the face, handed them food, told them that I loved them, something changes. I think this is why, just like in our Scripture reading, we're not called to go do whatever we want to do with our freedom with our liberty with our privilege but instead we're called to be slaves of one another that's some strong language it's very particular language it's their own purpose slaves of one another why? because we'll fly away and crash if we're not connected to others I love the illustration of freedom being like a kite. You've flown a kite. Imagine yourself as a kite, right? You're flying high in the air. You're cruising, but you want to go higher. So what do you do? You say, well, this thing that's tethered to me, if I could just cut that thing off, I could really go high. This thing keeps pulling on me and keeping me from going higher, right? Let's just cut that off. What happens? We crash. (laughs) You've seen, you've let go of the thing before. It's going to crash. There's no way it can control itself. It has to have the tension of the string. And we need the tension of each other in our lives. Of God in our lives. It's not safe for us not to have His cord attached to us. To be in that web of relationships a week or so ago, I, uh, Jessica had gone to Mississippi, I was by myself, and I was leaving for small group to teach. And, uh, and so, as usual, I was going to be right on time, and so I was trying to hurry to get out of there. And um, I got in my truck, or was walking out into the garage, and there was a bird that was in my garage perched up on like some of my stuff and he was freaking out. You know what I mean? Like he's like I don't want to be in here. You know he's flying around like crazy like a banshee. So I open up both garages pull my truck out. I'm like All right, buddy come on let's get and he just kept flying hitting his head on stuff going into the garage you know doors how they pull up and he's going around here and so he's just flying around hitting stuff and I'm like All right, come on buddy let's get you out of here man I gotta go. So I got a broom and I'm like trying to like hit him down so I mean if he'd have flown down that much he'd have been out of my garage and he just kept flying I was like get down you know and he's just going from place. And I struggle with him till I, I mean i would worked with him for 15 minutes and he's still just flying high hitting the ceiling won't get out he'd just, he just go down a little bit he'd have been out so I had to close down the garage leave him in there wonder what would happen to him wonder what I was going to find when I come back you know from small group two hours later I come back open up the garage and actually as I'm opening the garage he's in the window looking at me he's caught he's actually caught behind the blinds just looking at me you know eyes darting everywhere so i'm like okay this is gonna be fun you know uh so i get over there and i like all i do is just open up the blinds and he flies straight out that quick and it was like the holy spirit told me you're a lot like that bird big guy you want to fly high you think you know how to get out because how to get out is to go up right In God's kingdom, how to go up is to go down. John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, I must decrease so that he might increase. You're going to continue to bump your head. You're going to continue to just bang into the wall of this life until you lower yourself, until you humble yourself, until you confess your need for Jesus. We're not going to get out. We're not going to be free. But when we do, it's just a matter of Him opening the bars and we fly straight out. We're meant to fly. We're meant to be free. Some of us are not. Even with all that we have and all that we've done, we're not free. We're not happy. We're like these Pharisees. So worried about accusing others and thinking good of ourselves that they don't see their need for God are you willing this morning, along with me, to lower yourself, to bend your knee to the Father, to humble yourself and to confess your sins? Didn't Jesus do these three things? He suffered, He served, and then lastly, He shared. We're called to share. We're called to share everything that we have. All of it's His. We are just sharing it with who He wants us to, and where He wants us to. Jesus did these things, and if we're following Him, then we must do these things. And when we do, we'll find freedom, we'll find life, we'll find happiness, because all of that is fulfilled in our desire for God, our need for Him. So this morning, do what Levi did, Matthew, and when he says, follow me, stand up and follow him. Amen.